Lord, I pray that as we receive that picture in our spirits, and as you speak to our hearts and to our minds, oh God, that you would help us to walk in the way of Jesus, the way of Yeshua. Lord, I pray for each one here. Lord, you know us and you love us and you have a purpose for each of our lives. And Lord, you have called us to share in this time together. And we believe, Lord, this is not just for ourselves, but has great significance for your church and for Israel and for all the nations and for all creation. So, Lord, I pray that you would take the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts and that you'd make them acceptable unto thee, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. In the name of Jesus, our Messiah and Lord. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. It's very much of an honour for me to be with you and a privilege. And uh, I feel that those of us who are Messianic Jews are, are very much invited to be part of what God is doing amongst the nations, amongst the Protestant and the Catholic and the other churches. And uh, please don't put us on a pedestal. We're nothing special in ourselves. <laughs> I didn't choose to be born Jewish. It happened. My parents decided that. <laughs> I didn't really want to become a believer in Jesus. It happened. I didn't have any uh, <laughs> way of resisting the Lord. <laughs> and, and I don't think you know, for those of us who are Jewish and believe in Jesus, it, it's always a challenge. Where do we belong? Who are we? How do we identify? And I have to see our calling to be part of Israel and part of the body of Messiah as something far greater than just us as individuals. It's something about God's purposes, as, as Benjamin was uh, so, so well expounding. And, and that is a privilege that we don't deserve as Jewish people, as Jewish believers. Uh, but we're called to be part of God's purposes. So you've asked me to preach, to speak about a, a difficult and painful subject. And I know that Sister Yoela is, is going also to bring that. And I'm actually amazed. You know, I thought I was coming to a conference for Protestants and Catholics to seek reconciliation and renewal. And I am. But I'm also here in a meeting about Israel and the nations and about the reconciling purposes of God between Jew and the nations, Jew and Gentile. And I'm amazed at the emphasis that's coming through. I, I didn't expect it, Thomas, but I praise God for it because I know this is going to be very powerful and important. And, and so I, I've been given a difficult topic and I ask your forgiveness for all the mistakes I'm going to make. It's always good to ask in advance. <laughs> And if you're Christians, you have to forgive me anyway. <laughs> um, but what I want to do is try to give uh, what's called a Messianic Jewish perspective on uh, the Judensau. And uh, how many Jews does it take to have three opinions? <laughs> One. Because <laughs> so I don't always agree with myself. And if you were to ask myself and Benjamin, Orna and, and uh, our sisters... We don't all agree, so I'm simply giving my Messianic Jewish perspective on the Yudensal. I hope you can see the screen. Can you all see the screen at the back? 
yeah? Because if you'd like the PowerPoint, please send me an email at richardsharvey at gmail.com and I'll happily send you the slides. It's part of what I'm trying to write about. And uh, I can't say that my perspective is anybody else's apart from mine, but I hope that I'm sounding some of the key elements that most Messianic Jews would agree with. And the main thing is, what good, or can anything good, come out of Wittenberg? (laughs) For most Jewish people, no, it's bad. It's the place where Luther came, Luther and the Jews and their lives. And there's that thing in the church, the Judensau. So for most Jewish people, and even for many Messianic Jews, we start off with a very negative perception So I have to start praying for forgiveness and forgiving others. And I want this as a theme of one of the things I'm presenting. You may be repenting for the sins of the church, but I also have to pray to forgive. And if you believe in representational and identificational repentance, I think I believe in identificational forgiveness. And if I didn't know how to forgive, I wouldn't be following the way of Yeshua who said, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, and whose dying words on the cross are, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. So even though I find this very painful, and I have to confess to anger and bitterness in my heart very often when I think of the pain that has been caused my people, I also have, in the spirit of Yeshua and with the power of the Spirit, to forgive. So if you'd like to pray this prayer with me, I'm very happy because it's what an Orthodox Jew prays every night. And sometimes, you know, how often should we forgive our enemies? 70 times 7? Well, that's only a year and a half. But every day. So, if, and if you're following in German, uh, you have the headphones. And I'm sorry I didn't have time to uh, translate this into German. But let me read it with you, and I'm going to say it a couple of times during my presentation. I hereby forgive anyone who has angered or provoked me or sinned against me physically or financially or by failing to give me due respect or in any other manner relating to me involuntarily or willingly, inadvertently or deliberately, whether in word or deed, let no one incur punishment because of me. It's not a powerful prayer. And that's what an Orthodox Jew prays. How much more as a believer in Yeshua, who has been forgiven so much, should I be offering forgiveness, even before someone repents? That doesn't mean they shouldn't be brought to justice, but it means I have to be clean in my heart to release I'm going to have to do that a couple of times during this presentation. Bear with me. Why? Because I need you to know my perspective. If you were at Vulcan Road or Trento, I'm just going to repeat briefly some of my background. But some of you who weren't there, I'm coming as a Messianic Jew from London, England, but with German-Jewish roots. My great-great-great-great-grandfather, Salomon Hertz Hirschland, was born in Steinheim, Westphalia. 1766 and walked to Essen in uh, the Rogerbeet. He had many children uh, and there's a picture of them all. Salomon who was a veterinarian, Abraham a merchant, Levi a weaver and a butcher and a banker, Simon who was a banker and trader and established 
the Hirschland Private Bank, which was the largest private bank on the outbreak of the Second World War, and the, so the National Socialists took it over. And then my great-great-grandfather was Moses Hirschland, who was the doctor to Alfred Krupp, the industrialist. You've heard of him? Uh, good coffee machines. Yeah, and... Uh, I love the coffee machines. Uh, so that was the family in Essen, and they are still relics. And, and uh, there's a, a, that was my great grandfather, Richard Hirschland, who came uh, from Essen in Altdorf. That was the Hirschland family house. This was the Hirschland Bank, which is now a department store just outside Essen Station. And now all we have is a public square called Hirschland Platz. I would prefer the bank and the department store. <laughs> but they gave us a public square and an underground station. So there's even an underground station called Herschelmplatz. Uh, but my family were saved, most of them, from the Holocaust because in the 1900s, when the synagogue in Essen was being built, uh, they had come over to London. And if you look on the dedication of the synagogue built in 1901. Are you hearing me okay at the back? Is it too fast, too slow? Okay. Um, are we recording? Yes. Great. So, uh, the synagogue, you see Brothers Hirschland, London, were the donors or one of the, some of the founders of the synagogue. And uh, they were in London. So when the Second World, when Kristallnacht took place and the the synagogue was set fire to, although miraculously it was preserved and it's still standing today. And it's a Jewish cultural centre today with the archives and a synagogue there. Uh, but they had come over to the UK, most of them. Although I found lists of thousands of names, which I think were collected by the, by the Nazis. Um, the story is a sad story. And... British understatement, when we mean it's sad, we say, oh, it's not very good, but it's terrible. Uh, and uh, one of my, aunt, my um, relatives, he was a cousin of Moses Hirschland, was a full-page issue of the Nazi propaganda, Die Sturmer. You've heard of that? Yeah. And, and by the way, my German, I apologise, I don't speak it, but I often think that I was meant to live in that world. So... One of the um, Hirschland family was put on a show trial and a 16-page edition of Die Sturmer was published. Albert Hirschland, how do you say it, Die Raschenschande? Yeah, the race, race defiler. Now this is terrible. And, and you know, you read about this and, and you can't help but weep. And the emotions that you feel are powerful, anger and hatred and bitterness and you have to have cleansing. Now he is a very interesting person. I do a daily blog on this day in Messianic Jewish history and uh, I found that uh, he had actually become a Lutheran, would you believe? And of course many Jewish people did become Lutherans, some for genuine reasons, some for commercial reasons, some to preserve, to save their lives. Uh, and when he became a Lutheran, the Nazis put Pastor Oskar Zuckschwert, is that how you say it? Yeah, into um, internment because they said, you must not allow this Jew to become a Christian. 
And the, um, it's a long story, but I wrote about it on my blog. And Pastor Zuckschwert was defended by his um, church committee. And he even used the writings of Martin Luther to say that a Jew could become a Christian. So there are some good things about Luther. And again, as a Messianic Jew, I have to be careful to say it's not all bad. And I'm going to rejoice with Luther later, if I can get that far. So he, he cited Luther in defence of the pastor. And uh, eventually, though, Hirschland was like so many. He was a broken man. He was deported to the concentration camps. He died in Auschwitz. This is my family. And there are many like this. And for many, of all, probably all of us as Messianic Jews, Jewish believers, these are our family members who we mourn for and grieve over. Now, my great-grandfather came to London, and when he was in London, my grandfather, Sidney Moses Hirschman, named after the great-grandfather, um, he um, changed the name from Hirschland to Harvey, because he wanted a name that didn't sound German and didn't sound Jewish. So, Harvey's Bristol Cream. Jolly good share. It's a very British name. <laughs> but, I'm really German background. So, uh, and then my father was born Anthony Adolf Hirschland, because Adolf was a popular boy's name. And uh, I was uh, brought up with Richard, the name of my great-grandfather. So I've been very rooted to my German family connections. And every time I come to Germany, especially Essen, it's a time of history and research and mourning and prayer. And it's a spiritual journey for me. And I put off for many years coming to Germany. Uh, because it was just too painful. Uh, and I'm also here now because of what happened to me at Volkenroder. I was just so, so moved and challenged and sat on by God uh, because of that time. So I'm still here with you now. So I pray the prayer of forgiveness. I hereby forgive anyone who has angered or provoked me or sinned against me, physically or financially, or by failing to give me due respect, or in any other matter relating to me, involuntarily or willingly, inadvertently or deliberately, whether in word or deed, let no one incur punishment because of me. Easy to say, hard to do. So we now come to the Judensau, and it's really one of many anti-Semitic legends and stories and cartoons. And so it's not the only one, it's not even the main one, but it's one of the top ten. And if you go on the internet, you get top ten lists of what pasta to eat with your spaghetti or whatever, and you get lists of anti-Semitic legends and stereotypes. And just to remind us, there is so much. If you don't know Jews, or if you don't know Jewish believers in Yeshua, you need to know that this is what we grow up with. Some of us are made very aware of it, others we learn about it. Uh, but poisoning the wells, the Jews are poisoning the wells, and they're responsible for the Black Death in 1348. Particularly in the medieval time, Jews are blamed for any disasters. Uh, Jews are not human. They are part man and part beast. Which is why the Judensau is just showing you what the Jews naturally are. They're not really human. They're better off having sex with animals. Uh, 
The Judensal itself is, is a big theme which I'm going to come back to. It's number eight in the list. Uh, Jewish doctors killed Christians. Now, of course, Jewish doctors had better hygiene and standards. The Jewish people generally did. So you often went to a Jewish doctor, especially if you were a noble or a king or prince. But there was this myth that Jewish doctors kill Christians. And it's been a long time in its, uh, there. The golem, a mythical creature that, according to Jewish traditions, was, was built to avenge the massacres of Jews, the pogroms. And this mythical creature, a figure of popular superstition, and even today, lots of stories about the golem, the golem of Prague, and the famous rabbi, Maharal. Uh, the wandering Jew, the Jews are condemned to wander the earth. And St. Augustine says this, that they are there as reluctant witnesses. And Luther picks up on this. They're 1,500 years without being back in their land. And that's a sign that God has punished them, finished with them, because they don't believe in Jesus. Well, the good news for Luther today is we're back in the land. <laughs> so Lutherans changed the theology of Luther. And I just, I want to rejoice with what Luther's going to be doing in heaven. If I'm, I hope he's in heaven, but uh, I won't judge. But I actually want to envision reconciliation and not just live in the pain and the anger of brokenness and bitterness. The wandering Jew, and I blog about this in my blog, uh, even in, up until the 18th and 19th century, people report sightings of this wandering Jew. This is popular superstition, but people believed it. Uh, Jewish deicide, the Jews have killed Christ, therefore they are continuously to be punished. Pope Innocent III, my Catholic friends, please forgive me. You might tell me I'm misunderstanding the teaching of the church or I need to set it in context, but as I understand it, Innocent says this, the Jews by their own guilt are consigned to perpetual servitude because they crucified the Lord as slaves rejected by God in whose death they wickedly conspire. They shall by the effect of this very action recognise themselves as the slaves of those whom Christ's death set free. Terrible words, what I call punitive supersessionism. I'll define supersessionism, ersatz theology, replacement theology in a while. Uh, but it's, it's still there in many streams of the church. They're evil moneylenders. And if you need to, you cannot pay them back. Uh, of course, they were in a position, because of the Middle Ages, where they were denied trades, they were denied property, they were often the middlemen between the, the peasants and the farmers and the landlords. They were often in this position, but this is an evil myth. And when people say, well, all Jews are rich, no, we're not. Uh, so, uh, host desecration, they take the sacrament that is reserved in the church and they desecrate it and use it for their own rituals. And finally, the blood libel, they kidnap Christian children and they sacrifice them and use their blood. We were in Trentino, Simon of Trent is one of the examples of the numerous blood libels. Now this is just background, I, are you with me? Yeah. Uh, and I don't know if this is familiar to everyone, it, it probably is, but I just want to say this is the context in which the Judensal legend comes through. So again, I'm, I'm not going to read it, but we have to forgive. 
So now we come to the Juden sow. And I want to link the Juden sow, the Jew pig, with the messianic donkey. And uh, you can even, if you look, and uh, you probably can't see it here, there's a body on the rock there. Can you see that? So that is Simon of Trent. So 1485, is it 1495? Simon of Trent is uh, allegedly martyred and killed by Jews. And then this is the messianic donkey with a figure of, actually this is Gentiles riding on it, but this is borrowed from uh, the Jewish legends about the Messiah's return. And in fact, the Christians and the Jews, they were arguing with each other constantly in the medieval period. And uh, this Jewish donkey actually has Jews on it at the front and it has Gentiles on it at the back. The Gentiles are sitting on the tail and the Jews are on the front and the Messiah is riding into Jerusalem. And so this is, if you like, the opposite of the pig, the Judensau. Because the Judensau, which is on the other side, there has the rabbi with his hand up the pig's anus. Is that, what can I say in German? Yeah, Yeah. and it has uh, animals as well. So the pig and the donkey, in medieval worldview, animals are your cartoon characters who speak spiritual and character truths about life. So you do philosophy through animals, you do theology through animals, you do symbolism through animals. So it's powerful artistic symbols. So I'm coming up, so St. Simon, the martyr, is connected in medieval thought to the messianic donkey on which the Messiah rides back and the opposite of the messianic rabbi, the Jew pig, the Judensah. And uh, so we are... And I I wanted to bring that theme because Sister Yola particularly was interested in it. And I think if we had to replace the Judensau with something else, we might have the Messiah riding on a donkey. And I'm wanting to think about the best possible outcome here. I don't just want something taken down, but I do want it taken down. I want something else put up there that glorifies God. So a figure of Yeshua, the Jewish Messiah on the donkey, might be one possibility. I have another possibility for you later. I want to envision reconciliation. So and the Messianic donkey is really part of the Jewish Passover liturgy, the Passover tradition. And we don't have time to go into that, but if you're interested, I'll send you the PowerPoint and I'll happily give you some reading to do on that. Uh, and there's the Messianic donkey in the Passover uh, Haggadah coming into Jerusalem. Uh, but we're going to move on to the Yudensal. And again, I just pray, Lord, that you would take my words and that you would throw out anything that's not of you. And that you would speak to our hearts the things that you want us to learn from this. This is really horrific. It's so outrageous, obscene, insulting, fear-making. It is something that I protest at the strongest possible terms. And if there's any way, human, physical, spiritual, or whatever, to change it, let's do it. In the spiritual battle that we face, in whatever else, legal, political, whatever. So, I wonder if this video will play. This is about a protest about the Yudensau 
in, 19, in the 1990s by an artist who complained about the existence of the Uden's house. Should we... Uh, let's see if I'll say... Can we make it a bit louder? Just summarise for the English speakers. Yeah. Right. Um, the report was mainly about um, uh, the cathedral in Cologne, but we had uh, the Wittenberg um, at the end. And basically, um, this artist was protesting and saying that it should be removed. And we had a lady from the church saying, "Oh, well, I I'm sorry, but you know, it it's there." And uh, we can't just put up uh, plaques and notices around the church. And then also she later defended it, saying, well, you know, it's been there for like seven, eight hundred years. 
and um, the, the information was that there are 25 of these. There was at least a church, um, one person, I think he was a theologian, saying that um, we shouldn't, in the 25 churches in Germany, let it go like that. We should at least have a, have a plaque or something like that. Um, one of the uh, women who was asked just to pass by said it was stupid, his protest, that's what she called it. And uh, at the end, it talks about the fact that there's also one in Wittenberg. Thank you. Thank you, Julia. So I was, you know, I'm Jewish. If there isn't a book on the subject, you need to write a book on it. And I've been researching the history and reading some of the controversy. And uh, one man who was a Jewish historian of art, Isaiah Shachar, wrote his whole PhD dissertation on the Judensaal. And I'm now just doing a bit of analysis of this before we come to a response. So this, he says, is an exclusively German phenomenon, and he found something like 60 to 100 uh, examples of a Judensaal. He says that the concrete manifestations are mostly on houses of worship, either on the outside or on the inside, and uh, they often link the blood libel that the Jews kidnapped Christian children and murdered them as a secondary scene. Both Jews and pigs constitute an abominable category of beings. And of course the modern term, Sal Judah, if I say that in Germany, will I be arrested? Or put on trial? I hope I would. And I would like this to be put on trial as well. Uh, these are terrible, abusive insults. Uh, and he says that Jews are the sow's offspring, the offspring of the female pig, and turn to their mother for their proper nourishment, so the Jews go back to the pig for their food. And then the fourth point, I don't know if you can see it, not only eating from the pig, but sexual intercourse with it. And many of the Judensau images have sexual relations between a pig and a Jew. Which again, you couldn't print this today. You'd be arrested. The police would be confiscating your computer immediately. So why are we allowing this to continue? Uh, that's an example of some of the 32 places where Judensau statues or pictures are there. In red are the ones that have been removed. And uh, in black are the ones that are still there. Many people don't know this, but they're all around Germany. They're not just in Wittenberg. You can't just get rid of one. And I don't think it should be destroyed, but it should be moved. Uh, and so this is a phenomenon of the medieval world. And we have to understand that. So, for example, in Nuremberg, I was there about a month ago for a meeting of the Jewish Christian Relations Committee. They say this, and I like what they say, so I'm going to read it. The Judenthal is a shaming and abusive image. With other humiliating images, it is part of our history that we neither can nor wish to deny or thrust aside. Today they are, for us a, they are for us a warning that earlier errors must not live on and that we must stand against all anti-Semitic language. 
the anti-Semitic representations of St. Sebaldus Church are part of the world of pogroms of 1298-1349, the Black Death, and 1499. Until today, these images from a different time defame and harm, even when many people no longer understand their symbolic meaning. The Evangelical Church of Nuremberg sets for itself the challenge that this inheritance poses. It does not play down or weaken in any way the evidence of this blindness, even when the images are aesthetically beautiful stone or glass, some were. They remain warning signs that cry to heaven, call to penitence and sharpen awareness. Whoever represses evil and wants to forget promotes, however unconsciously and without willing it, new inhumanity. And that resonates with me as a Jewish believer. We are told as we're brought up, never forget and remember so that you do not make the same mistakes again. So we have to cleanse these memories. We have to be reconciled with those who we have offended and persecuted through pictures and words. But we must remember them. So in Brandenburg, this is the earliest example that um, Shachar could find, 1230, the earliest extant example in the Cathedral of Brandenburg. Uh, the weathered and partly damaged terracotta depicts a huge sow that suckles five unclear things, some of which appear to be piglets. However, one of these has a human hind leg and head. The sow has a human head and wears a pointed Jewish hat. It's not rocket science. This was how you taught people who could not read, by showing them the pictures in the church or outside the church. I don't think I have time to go through all the others. Lembo, Lemgo, I don't even know where that is, in uh, 1325. But this one is a man in a sexual relation with a pig. The, the top of the pig's snout has been broken off. Uh, this one is um, a half-naked Jew and a pig, a second Jew crouching underneath, and the sow sucks on a teat. You see that uh, Vinthen, I don't know where that is, Tal, uh, and um, this is uh, in the form of a sow suckling a Jew who pushes a piglet aside to have access to the teat. Uh, and then this became printed and circulated when printing came about. You made money by circulating cartoons like this. And uh, so there are lots of examples of the Yudin sound. Uh, and uh, there's a typical pose of the rabbi, the one with the hat, putting his hand up the anus of the pig. And we'll see what Luther says about that in a moment. Uh, and I will ju jump through. That's the Brandenburg and Regensburg uh, woodcuts. It's horrific. That's with Simon of um, uh, Triento there as well. So many sculptures, however, remain uncommented, continuing to stand amidst other testaments of medieval humour, which was very earthy and scatological and often used not only obscene words and language, but also words about 
faeces and uh, excrement and things like that. And both their existence and the negligent, even indifferent handling of the fact are indeed no matter to laugh about. This is a historian of art who says these were put up to be humorous because the best way to attack people is to laugh at them. So please don't tell Jewish jokes. I'm Jewish, we've heard them before, we tell them better and we always think people are attacking us. Uh, but um, it's not humorous that they're still there. So now we come to Wittenberg. And the Zionist encyclopedia gives you a Jewish perspective on these things. It says this, the Judensau is not the most outstanding, egregious, good English word, aspect of European anti-Semitic culture and society. It is only a symbol in a work of art and not a violent act in itself or a call for immediate action. If we wanted to take legal action against this statue, we would have to be very careful about this. It's just a work of art. It also has a spiritual power, but it's not a crime. It may not be a crime. It may be committing discrimination. My lawyer friends will have to advise. But when this was written by Ami Isroff in 2009, Israeli scholar, he says it's not a, a violent act in itself, although it's pretty offensive. And by the way, I strongly believe in freedom of speech. I think Jewish people have deni been denied that very often, so I don't want to deny people the power of freedom of speech, but I do challenge it. He then says this, however, it is certainly remarkable that these obscene sculptures, which appear in churches and public places, are defended even today with obstinacy as cultural assets by church and secular authorities in Germany. Now, forgive me, I'm not German, so I, I don't want to offend anyone, but this is an Israeli scholar giving his understanding of the situation. Now we come to Luther. Hallelujah. Praise God for Luther, for all the good things that he did. But he has these terrible blind spots. So the Luther Playmobil toy, I've got six of them, is the, most fa is the fastest selling Playmobil toy of all time. Did you know that? And you can buy it in the shop here. It'll cost you five euros, but I paid less for mine if you buy it in the proper toy shop. Uh, because, of course, Luther, Luther everywhere. And that's why we're here. So the fastest selling toy of all time, and you can dress him up. Some Jewish guy even uh, gave him a little book on the Jews and their lives to show even the toy should teach us the lesson about anti-Judaism. And... Uh, of course, we're in the decade of Luther, the 500th anniversary of Luther, and uh, he is being owned by everybody. And next year, we will be owning him, and we will be replaced. We will be praying for reunion and reconciliation and repentance through his work. And we come to his most vitriolic work on the Jews and their lives. Hands up if you have read this. Hands up if you have not read this. You need to read it. 65,000 words. And then he publishes an edition. I mean, the one thing about Luther is he writes so much. So in the past two or three years, I've been trying to read everything that he has written about Jews and Judaism. Especially as many people think that Luther started off good 
and with high hopes that the Jews would come to believe in Jesus and then went back. My view is that's not correct. He inherited from Augustine and from medieval superstition anti-Judaism and he made it worse. So I, I don't see a good Luther and then a bad Luther. I see a pretty bad Luther who gets worse. And yet, he's a man of God who discovers the truth of justification by faith. So as a Messianic Jew, I can't, I've got to be very careful here and I'm judged as much as anybody else. But I'm looking at what he writes and on the Jews and their lies, which was reprinted by the Nazis, against the Jews for rejecting Jesus, against the rabbis for not accepting scripture, Jews should be thrown out of Germany, their books destroyed, their synagogues burned, they should be given no safety in the German lands, etc. And that's pretty bad. And then the next book, which is really an extra bit, on the ineffable name and on the lineage of Christ. Because you'll see at the Judensau statue, there is an addition, Rabbini Shem Hamafarash, which was not there when Luther originally preached on the statue, but was added later, and I think by Lutherans. And uh, Luther says this, here in Wittenberg, I'll go back to the picture. Uh, where is it? Because I want you to uh, see the picture in your mind. There you are. Shem Hammer Farash. Here in Wittenberg, do you know this already? Have you read this? No. This is your history if you're a good Lutheran, if you're German, if you're part of the Jewish people. We need to know these things. Here in Wittenberg, on our parish church, there is a sow carved in stone. Under her, young piglets and Jews lie suckling. Behind the sow stands a rabbi who lifts the sow's right leg, and with his left hand he pulls her rear over himself. It's a sexual image. Uh, he bends down and looks most studiously under her rear at the Talmud inside. This is Luther's own theological creativity. Uh, he's borrowing it, I have to confess, from an apostate Jew who became a Christ, an anti-Jewish Catholic, Margarita. But uh, he's adding a theological spin to the popular superstition. He looks and most studiously under her rear at the Talmud inside as if he wanted to read and see something difficult and special. This is most likely where they got their Shem Hamphorus, which is his way of saying Shem Hamephorash. He's saying that the word Shem is name, Hamephorash, the fully pronounced or fully translated name of God. Because, of course, we do not say the name of God as Jews. We, we read yod heh vav the Tetragrammaton, and we say Adonai, or Hashem, because the name of God is so holy for us. And, of course, Luther and the Judensah, they're going to the very heart of what is most sacred to Jewish people, which is the name of God. And you say it comes out of a pig. You just can't do this. It's wrong. It's a desecration of the name of God. And Luther goes on and he says this. This is most likely where they got their Shemhan for us from. For previously there were very many Jews in these areas. 
This is proved by the names of towns and villages and also of citizens and peasants which are still in Hebrew today. In fact, there's even a street by the church called Judenstrasse. I'd love to know the history of that. Uh, so an educated, honourable man who, has an, who was an enemy of the filthy lives of the Jews had this image made. Thus, even today among the Germans, it is said, to put it rudely, which Luther loved to do, of one who has great wisdom without cause, where did he read that? Out of the rear of a sow. So he's playing with popular ideas and popular humour. He's got a good theological mind, but he's using it to cause harm. To this end, Luther says, I'm quoting him still, one could play around with the words Shem Hamphoras, which is, he wasn't that good at Hebrew, by the way. Melanchthon was better. He was okay with his Greek. Shem Hamphoras, and make it Peres Shama. Filth is Sham, Shama, there. Or the name, I'll master it artificially like the Jews so that it sounds similar. So what he's doing is he's doing playful exegesis of the name and desecrating it by connecting it to the pig and the south. And that is on the wall of this church. I've been talking with my friends, Alexander and others, and I'm thinking, should it be destroyed? Should it be taken down? I leave that to you. It's, it's your country, it's your church. But for me... I can't worship God in a church that has that on it. And personally, if I was God, I wouldn't want anyone to worship me in that church until it had been removed. I'm not God. Maybe God can be worshipped everywhere. But I don't think I can worship God in that church. So, I'm going to uh, keep moving because Shachar, then he analyses it uh, and uh, I've just explained this now about the Shem Hamephorash. It's quite a complicated Hebrew phrase, and uh, but Luther does it. And now I'm going to pray the daily prayer of forgiveness. Join me. I hereby forgive anyone who has angered or provoked me or sinned against me, physically or financially, or by failing to give me due respect or in any other matter relating to me, involuntarily or willingly, inadvertently or deliberately, whether in word or deed, let no one incur punishment because of me. Father, as Yeshua prayed, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Lord, I pray for the ability to forgive and for your divine forgiveness for all the terrible things that have been done in your name, even by Luther and those who made these horrible images. We have to really come to a place of cleansing of our own emotions and reconciliation and then renewal and rejoicing. So I, again, that scripture, there's one of my favourite scriptures that somebody read earlier. Let's read it together. For godly grief produces repentance which leads to salvation and brings no regret but worldly grief produces death that means that repentance should be followed by reconciliation and restoration and rejoicing 
And even in this hardest of topics of Luther's anti-Judaism, I want to see a vision of reconciliation between Jews and Lutherans, Jews and Germans. And that's why I'm in this process here. Luther is inheriting the Augustinian theology that he inherited as an Augustine monk of the Jews as the reluctant witnesses who are preserved, St. Augustine. He adds theological imagination to popular superstition and prejudice. So it's, it's what was already there in the medieval world with Luther's own additions. He gives a rationale for hatred and persecution of Jews and Judaism, and he uses what I call punitive supersessionism, that the Jews have not only been re replaced by the church, because the church is the new Israel, but they deserve to be punished by Christians because of their rejection of Jesus. And he uses that to justify Christian claims to be the new Israel. And uh, I'm not going to talk about supersessionism now, but there are many different types. Ersatz theology, uh, and uh, I'm just going to leave that. It's on the PowerPoint if you like it. I want instead, as I come to a conclusion, to imagine a better possibility. I want to say, what if... Are you still with me, by the way? Yes. <laughs> what if Luther had written 100 theses and not 95. And Thesis 96, it's going to be in the book that I'll be bringing out. He didn't write it, but I've written it for him in Luther's style. Yeah. Is, I protest against the Catholic Church denial of the ongoing love of God for his people Israel. Yes. You know, I love the 95 Theses. Everyone should have a copy. And, you should, and the first thing says we are to repent. And I, if Luther can repent in heaven, that's not part of my theology at the moment, but <laughs> repentance is a blessing. And if he had written a further five theses saying God has not finished with Israel, the church is commanded to love the Jewish people, God's future for Israel includes all nations, Yeshua should not be separated from his people, and I've written them, if you want them, you can get a copy. It's not as good as Luther's, but let's assume he did that. And then what if Luther had met with Yossel of Rosheim? Yossel of Rosheim was an advocate of German and Polish Jews in the reigns of the Holy Roman Emperors Maximilian and Charles V, governor of all the Jews of Germany, a great advocate for the Jewish people, and he financed uh, the emperor's expenses, and he wrote letters to Luther asking to meet with him. And it would have been so different if Luther had met with Yossel and maybe even been invited to a Shabbat dinner and sung some good Jewish songs and drunk some good Jewish wine and maybe invited to Yossel's son's bar mitzvah for his daughter's wedding. And imagine Luther dancing at a Jewish wedding. I have to imagine that possibility. There will be dancing in heaven, right? Yeah. So maybe, yeah, I, I want to look for the best restoration of these things. What if he had done that? What if Luther had written not on the Jews and their lives, but on the Jews and the truths that God has given them? Let's write it posthumously. This is what he should have written. 
What if Luther had died repenting of his sins against the Jew? Again, the last sermon he preaches, the last letter he writes to his wife, just a few days before he dies, he says, I'm ill because the Jews are attacking me. He blames the Jews. And he gives an admonition against the Jews. Again, some people think Luther repented of anti-Semitism on his deathbed. There's no evidence for that. In fact, he persisted. And it was part of his worldview. But what if? Let's imagine it. And uh, I would like maybe another image on the wall of the church in Wittenberg. This is Yeshua. Surrounded by his people. Oops. Surrounded by his people. And he is the one who, who reaches out to Israel and the nations. What a transformation that would be if there was a positive uh, image on the church. And I want to imagine the best outcome. Not just repentance, but restoration yes. and renewal and rejoicing. I want my people to be glad that they come to visit Wittenberg. And I want them to be touched by the repentance that they see. I want them to meet people like you. So in conclusion, the Judea, and I put never again, the typical Jewish statement about the Holocaust and other things. The Judensau and its role in the history of anti-Semitism make it harder for Jewish people to respect or trust Christians or believe in Jesus. They ch it challenges Christians to show the fruits of repentance and move to action. Now, I'm an activist. If there's a problem, I want to read a book about it, and then I want to do something about it. Yes. So if nobody else is there, I'm going to be protesting. Yes. Well, I'm a visitor. So, But I, I want to see th things change. And it's a call to all of us to renounce prejudice, hatred, and lies against each other. And especially as we think of the multicultural society we're in, the prejudices against immigrants, against those of other faiths and creeds, we have to set an example by addressing this. Hello. Now, I did have two poems, but I don't know if my time has gone. Would you like to hear the lament? I think. Or should we pray? This afternoon. This afternoon. Okay. I'll read this afternoon. So, thank you so much for listening. Take away the things that are not of the Lord and take to heart the things that are from Him.